We are a couple of weeks into summer vacation here in the Miller household. It was quite a school year, as many of you experienced from one angle or another. But preparing for the sermon this week brought to mind for me an incident that happened towards the beginning of this ordeal, uh, sorry, school year. Some of you uh, may have heard Meredith or I mention this before, but we noticed on a couple of occasions uh, where things that happened in the lead up to the school year were, to put it simply, inequitable. Claremont schools, just as a little background for those of you who are less familiar with them, they are more or less divided between the three more southern schools that are made up of a majority of families that you could broadly categorize as working class minorities, many of whom actually live outside of Claremont itself and have moved into the, or have gotten their kids into the district for the schools. And then there's the four northern schools either in Claremont's main village itself or kind of up the mountain a little bit, that are made up of a majority of wealthy white families. Not exclusively on either either count, but, but a clear majority in both cases. And we asked to talk to one of the administration about how things seem to be going a little differently in those northern schools than in our southern ones. More resources available, materials distributed more smoothly, and we wanted to know what was being done to correct these inequities, to ensure that the mostly brown families down the mountain were getting the same things and experiences as the mostly white families up the mountain. The response was defensive, to say the least, on the part of the administration. And it threw us off enough that we got in touch with a woman who had been involved with the school board in Claremont for years and who was also a longtime pastor in the area at a progressive mainline church and who had specifically talked to us in the past about wanting to represent those Southern schools' interests to the district. And what was most fascinating was that the response we got from her was almost identical to the response we had gotten previously. An affronted sense of shock that we would dare accuse the district of racial inequity. Didn't we know that these were good people? They weren't racists. They cared about the right things. They were good liberals, not racists. How dare we accuse them of such a thing? Preparing for today, it also brought to mind a similar sort of conversation we had with one of Riley's friend's parents. Their family is quite progressive, and she had recently begun working at one of the Claremont colleges, I think at least partially assuming that this famously liberal institution would share her progressive values. And then, about a year in, a colleague had been given a negative tenure review on grounds that seemed to her blatantly racist. And when objections were raised, the response was an affronted sense of shock that anyone would dare accuse them of such things. This is a good liberal college. We're good people. We aren't racists. How dare you accuse us of such a thing? What we're going to explore a bit in this sermon, with the help of the African-American theologians that we've been learning from in this series, is why this response happened. What is behind this affronted sense of shock on the part of the representatives of an institution that has acted in racist ways? And I think the fundamental reason for this is a faulty understanding in our culture of sin. And I don't mean an aversion to the concept of sin. I mean a misunderstanding of the concept of sin itself. Fundamentally, I think the problem is not that we as a culture, or these individual people in particular, are not willing to accept that we are sinners. That, that may be true too, but it's, it's not the main problem here. I think the fundamental problem is that the church has sinfully misrepresented what sin even is, and that that has resulted in the broader confusion in our culture that I think these opening stories highlights. So let's unpack this a bit by turning to Galatians and how we can learn to read the Bible better by listening to our black brothers and sisters. 
Specifically, we're going to turn to a passage that, within the church's misrepresentation of sin, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So this is from Galatians 4, verse 8 and following. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that my work for you may have been wasted. Paul is talking to the Galatians about the sin of idolatry, it seems, that before they knew God, that is when they were Gentiles, they were enslaved to beings who are not gods. And then now they are returning to that same sin of idolatry. Seems clear enough. Except if you remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago, about the main point of Galatians. It is most definitely not that the Galatian Christians are returning to paganism and pagan idolatry. Paul's main concern in Galatians is that they have been led astray into thinking that they need to become Jews, performing the Jewish works of the law, circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, food laws, those things that would mark them off as Jews, and that only then would they experience salvation and become a part of God's family. But if that is what they're turning to, how is that idolatry? How is that being re-enslaved to beings that are not God, weak and beggarly spirits in the words that Paul uses? Becoming Jewish doesn't seem to fit into that category very well. Getting circumcised and keeping food laws, that doesn't seem much like following elemental spirits. But that's what Paul says they're doing. Two things are going on here. One is that idolatry as a concept needs to be expanded to include not just the worshiping of literal idols made out of stone or gold to, as we've said before, putting our trust in anything other than God. Money, an idol. Beauty, an idol. Nationalism, an idol. And here the people are putting their trust in Jewishness, in the marks of being Jewish, the works that one does to set oneself apart as a Jew. By doing those things, we will be saved. That has become the place they are putting their trust instead of Jesus. In that sense, they have gone back to idolatry, even if the idols have changed since their pagan days. But there's something else, something that's maybe even more surprising to us. Paul is saying not just that Jewishness is an idol in some abstract or metaphorical sense. He is referring to it as, in some sense, being a spirit, a personified being. Paul does this elsewhere too, referring to rulers and authorities, which is sometimes translated as principalities and powers. He refers to them in ways that seem to indicate he's talking about both actual emperors and kings of the world, but also some sort of spiritual realm that has some connection to those physical rulers and authorities. The powers are both. The spirits the Galatians are being enslaved to are both. They are an abstract idol of Jewishness, and there is some actual spirit behind that. In other words, the sin that Paul is talking about, that the Galatians are guilty of, is individual choices that individual Galatians are making to put their trust in works of the law, of Jewishness, uh, instead of in Jesus, and the sin he is talking about is something bigger, broader, a spirit that animates the whole institution of Jewishness and is drawing the individuals in. 
What Paul sees here in Galatians is that sin does not just animate individual choices. It also animates institutions, systems, structures. Western, highly individualistic cultures tend to resist or pass over this insight. But other cultures throughout the world, including African cultures, are more collective. And one of the aspects of Paul's theology in Galatians and elsewhere that was consistently highlighted by the black theologians we are reading was this collective nature of sin. Black people in the United States have, of course, experienced the reality of evil as a system or structure. Slavery was not just a series of individual evil choices. It was a system built up over time that was self-reinforcing, creating an environment in which individuals learned to see black people as subhuman from the very beginning, to see themselves as righteous in their owning of other human beings, and so to make choosing something else virtually unthinkable for any individual. The sin of racism becomes embedded in the collective worldview of the culture, in such a way that it would be practically unrealistic for any individual to opt out of that sin. It is an outside force, exerting pressure on the individuals within a culture or institution, but not really coming from any one individual within the system. Paul would attribute this collective sin to spirits, in some real sense, to literal personified spirits that animate culture and institutional sins that push them forward and strengthen them. Some of us might be comfortable with that view of things. Others might prefer to think of it more metaphorically, but the reality of it should not be denied in either case. Either way, there are forces outside of individuals that animate and reinforce sinful systems and structures. In other words, there is a real collective sin called racism, one that goes beyond individual choices, and one in which good people, good liberals even, can be caught up without knowing it. This is what the good liberals in my opening stories were missing. They were missing the understanding of sin that would help them come to understand the institutions they were a part of, that they were made up of good people, people who very much did not want to be racist, and the institution could be racist even so. Because in the Bible, sin and evil, they're not only, not primarily even, individual bad choices. They are also, maybe, maybe mostly, the collective cultural and institutional systems and structures that create an environment in which good people don't even recognize their participation in sin. It would be unthinkable to do anything different. It's very easy for those in the dominant culture, in positions of power within institutions, to not understand or even deny this collective sense of sin. It's far harder to miss for those who live on the margins, for whom the systemic inequities, the profound injustices are an ever-present reality, whether they're dealing with good people or not. So black theologians can teach us to see this in scripture for two main reasons. They've experienced collective sin wielded against them. And their cultural roots are in a more collective, less individual worldview to begin with. So they understand Paul at that collective level, which is, after all, the cultural context that Paul was in as well. Israel was a highly collective tribal culture. Of course, there are collective sins, people in Paul's day would think. The sin of my family, my tribe, my culture is, in some real sense, mine even if my individual choices didn't directly contribute to it. 
And my response to it is the same as my response to any sin, to recognize it, name it, confess it, repent of it, and turn back from it to Jesus. Some of you may, like me, have a bit of a reaction to this of, come on, how many times do I have to say sorry for the collective sin of racism? I've done that like a lot. But here's the thing about these collective sins. We might apologize, but they don't go away. They're still there. And so I wonder if confessing these sins is less about feeling our own guilt over and over and over again, and more about naming and renouncing the sins of the culture and institutions we are a part of, reminding ourselves and each other that those sins are out there, that they are very real forces, and that they are constantly exerting pressure on us to conform, to become a part of the evil system, while still being a good person, of course. When that's the situation that we all find ourselves in, it is helpful to keep on naming those sins, keep on renouncing them, keep on reminding ourselves to turn away from them and to Jesus. That's what confessing collective sin can be. And that's what we did as a church group after the sermon was completed. We named and renounced and then turned from the collective sins that we saw in the cultures and institutions that we were a part of. And as a group, tried to turn back to Jesus once more. So I'd encourage you, um, whether it's with someone else or on your own, to name and renounce some of the collective sins that are a part of the institutions and the cultures that you are a part of, to remind yourself that those are there and that they are real, and then to turn back to Jesus. See you next time.